So, good evening. It's always just so special, this very calm, collected atmosphere in this hall to re-enter this space that you have all been creating today through your practice. So, tonight I'd like to talk about one of the most fundamental teachings of the Buddha. So, like the overall framework of his teaching. And it is a teaching on the four noble truths, or maybe better, the four ennobling truths. All the various Buddhist traditions... If they, even if they vary greatly in terms of their practice styles or even some philosophies, they all agree on this framework that contains the central message about this path of awakening. And the Four Noble Truths also underlie contemporary secular mindfulness mindfulness-based interventions. They have really informed and shaped those interventions, like, for instance, MBSR or MBCT. And so I think it's really helpful to know something about this framework, about this frame of reference. The Buddha taught these Four Noble Truths shortly after his awakening, He wanted to share with his listeners the essence of his profound realization, the understanding and insight that he had gained after years of spiritual practice. What had driven him in his spiritual quest was a confrontation with suffering that he had as a young man. He grew up as a son of a chieftain and he was living in very, very privileged and luxurious circumstances and was totally shielded from poverty as a child and adolescent. And one day he ventured outside of this palace and was confronted with the realities of the world. So according to the legend, He saw a person who was very old, one who was very ill, and he saw a dead person, a corpse. So it was this confrontation with suffering, this reality shock that aroused him and made him wonder if and how it is possible for humans to ever be free from this suffering. It was this shock that led him to embark on his spiritual search where he dealt with this existential question. Why are we all confronted with old age, with illness, with death? Why do we suffer? Does it have to be like this? Is there another way? So the Four Noble Truths are really an expression of the understanding that the Buddha gained in his night of his awakening. And they are, in short, the first truth is the truth of suffering. There is suffering. 
The second is the truth about the arising of suffering, the origins of suffering. The third one is the truth about the end of suffering. And the fourth is the truth of the path to the end of suffering, the so-called Noble Eightfold Path. These four truths address the experience that we all know, that we share being human, being sentient beings, our existential experience that we are exposed to pain, suffering, stress, and they can help us gain a perspective on our situation and actually find a way that can lead us out of pain, of stress, towards liberation, towards awakening. Actually, the word truth is a little bit tricky and misleading, and it is important to understand that the Four Noble Truths are not about some metaphysical truths or about some dogma that we should believe. They point to an experiential reality that we all share and that we can verify in our own experience. They invite us to turn towards our experience. And actually, you know, we know from modern research that in the very early discourses, this word truth wasn't even there. So the very early teachings of the Buddha were basically just, there is pain, there is arising, there is ending and the path. So it is very basic, it is very experiential. Um, we all suffer at times, we experience stress, and these truths, they speak to this situation. So the Buddha saw himself as a compassionate doctor who recognizes our true situation and who shows us a way of how to meet this situation and live with it in a more skillful way. Actually, the Four Noble Truths seem to be based on an ancient Indian scheme of medical diagnosis that was common at the time of the Buddha. And this scheme starts with naming the disease that a patient has, followed by naming the causes that have led to the disease, giving a prognosis of what is possible in terms of healing, and finally the treatment that one should apply. And so that was what the Buddha taught, and that was how he saw himself offering us a treatment, a medical treatment. Also, the adjective noble seems to be a later addition. And if you think about it, it seems a little bit odd to say that a truth is noble. What, what do we mean by that? And a better translation instead would be maybe to speak of the truth of the noble one. So the truth as they were realized by the Buddha. Or the truth of the noble ones. The truth of those who have walked and realized the path. But the translation that seems to be most meaningful in my 
view, at least most precise, is if one believes, also the scholars, is if we speak of the truth which calls nobleness. So this points to the fact that engaging with those four truths does something to us. It can, so to speak, ennoble us by contemplating, by realizing those four noble truths. The mind is really profoundly transformed, liberated from very destructive habits. So maybe it's better to say not the truth are in themselves noble, but our mind, as it engages with them, as it deeply understands them, can attain a state of nobility. So I really see those Four Noble Truths as an invitation for all of us to contemplate our own experience, to explore it in order to get a deeper understanding, not just intellectually, That's where we begin usually, but really on a very experiential, intuitive level, more and more. We can see them like lenses through which we can look at our experience. So Chris has already spoken about the way of looking that we can bring to experience, and we can see the Four Noble Truths also as one very skillful way of looking at our experience through these lenses. So, as I mentioned, the first ennobling truth is there is suffering. And the Pali word, the ancient Indian language called Pali, the Pali word used here is dukkha. So, this is a word that is hard to translate into modern languages. It can mean stress, it can mean suffering, it can also mean pain, conflict, frustration, discomfort, unsatisfactoriness. There is a whole range of meaning included under, uh, within dukkha. Um, interesting to look at the roots of the word. The word dukkha is composed from du, which means bad or difficult, and ka, which means empty. So it's like the hole in the middle of uh, a wheel containing the axle. And when we think of a cart as it was probably used at the time of the Buddha, the quality of such a cart depended very much on the exact adjustment of the axles and the wheels. And if these were not perfectly adjusted, if they were somehow uneven, then every time the wheel was turning, there would be a bump and we would have a very unpleasant journey. So that is this felt sense of dukkha. There is this sense of unease, of bumpiness, of friction. And the point that the Buddha makes here is that dukkha is inherent to our existence as human beings. We simply cannot avoid a certain amount of frustration, disappointment, anger, conflict, loss, 
injury, grief, because such experiences are part of what it means to be a human being. Sorry to say that. And indeed, when we look around, when we look at our experience being here on retreat, we cannot help noticing this. There is suffering. Some of you have mentioned it today, all the forms of suffering that we come across even just in one day on retreat within pretty comfortable circumstances. Still, there is plenty of suffering And in the world around us, you know, on a collective level, disease, conflict, climate change, war, abuse, corruption, exploitation, separation, death. I mean, it's just, it's just enormous, the amount of suffering. The Buddha described this truth in these words. Now, this practitioner's is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Union with what is displeasing is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. So let's go a little bit into this paragraph. Birth is suffering. Normally, we consider a birth to be a wonderful event, naturally. And yet, the birth process in itself is often very painful for, for the mother and the child. And Birth is a condition for aging and death. So in this sense, we can say that even just the very fact of being born will bring some amount of suffering. Then aging. It is obvious enough that aging is associated with suffering and this becomes more and more obvious with increasing age. We don't like to admit it, but we see that our skin doesn't look as firm as it did 10 years ago, that we have more aches and pains than we used to, that our body is losing strength and flexibility, our memory weakens and our senses lose their sharpness. And this can be the source of much grief, of sadness, suffering. Illness is suffering. This is fairly obvious. All of us having bodies are confronted with illness, with disease, with pain, with chronic illnesses, with accidents. Death is suffering. We know that the death of a loved one is one of the most devastating experiences that we can have as a human being this loss, and then our own death, there will come a day where this body-mind process will come to an end and there can be much, maybe even unconscious fear of what will this bring to us, how will this be, to let go of everything we know, everything we are. 
The Buddha continues with, union with what is displeasing is suffering. We all know that plenty. So we find ourselves in circumstances that we would prefer not to be with. A difficult boss, a colleague who is somehow unnerving, to be together with pain, with unpleasant sounds, with unpleasant tastes, with financial problems, etc. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. On the other hand, often we are separated from that which we love, what we would like to have, that which we cherish, maybe also being separated from those whom we love. Some of you have spoken about this today. Being separated from health, being separated from success, from resources. Not to get what one wants is suffering. We suffer when we fail at an exam, when we aren't promoted, when we cannot find a partner or cannot get a child, when we don't get the apartment that we had hoped for or the recognition and the last sentence might sa- sound a little bit mysterious. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. These five so-called aggregates refer to all the dimensions that make up our experience, you could say. So for the moment, I will simplify these five aggregates just into body and mind and leave the finer distinctions at the side. What the Buddha says here is that body and mind in themselves entail suffering and stress. So in the case of the body, we have already seen and we know from our experience that bodies are of the nature to grow old, to experience pain at times. Bodies are fragile, they are impermanent. And mental states too are of the nature to pass, to be impermanent, to be unpleasant or difficult. Sensory experiences, thoughts, fantasies, dreams, they can be wonderful at times, but all of them pass. We cannot hold on to them. They are, in this sense, unsatisfactory. So we see dukkha in many, many, many forms. And if we reflect on how the Buddha described dukkha, we see that he makes it very clear that suffering is part of being a living being. It's an existential fact. It is the nature of our existence to be unsatisfactory and painful. And of course, we don't want to deny that there are many beautiful and pleasant experiences in life, but there is also the difficult, the painful. And that is what we need to see and understand. Of course, we wish that things were different. But if we hold on to this wish, to this expectation, 
we're going to suffer even more. So we really have to understand dukkha as a built-in feature of our world. And what that implies, and that can be really a big relief to realize, is that dukkha is therefore not personal. It's a very universal experience. It's not our fault if we experience dukkha. Flowers are of the nature to blossom and then to wither. Bodies are of the nature to grow old and to die. Material objects like this bell or chairs, blankets, meditation cushions, computers are of the nature to fall apart, to break at some point. All pleasant experiences, they are of the nature to pass. And, you know, the Buddha didn't want to make us depressed. That was not his intention. (laughs) I'm sorry. I hope you're not getting this impression. The reason why he wanted us to clearly see our situation was that on the basis of this understanding, we would find a way out of it. Because first we need to know where we are. So often we want to skip this step. We want to immediately do something about the situation, but we really need to take time to actually see where we are before we can act. And that is the purpose of the first noble truth. If we let this message in, then we realize that nothing in this world, no person, no physical object, nothing is going to do it for us, ultimately. Nothing can give us the final satisfaction, the peace, the the happiness that we so much long for deep down. Whatever, other people, money, pleasant sense experiences, success, ultimately, it's all dukkha. It's on some level unsatisfactory. And having this view right now can allow the mind to just, you know, let go. You know, Chris did this movement of Viveka, of letting go. It can lead to a certain disenchantment if we see our experience through this lens. It can lead to what Robert Bia calls a holy disinterest in worldly things. And this is actually good It frees the mind from being so enchanted by superficial things and objects so that it begins to search for something that is more meaningful, more fulfilling. So we need to acknowledge our situation. With all the kindness that we have, with all our honesty, we need to really turn our mind to the truth of dukkha and That is what we practice in mindfulness meditation, to be mindful also of what is unpleasant, of what is difficult, challenging, the boredom, the irritation, the anger, the pain, the loneliness, the heartbreak, 
everything. It's all dukkha and it can be known. This is dukkha. And only this willingness opens the door to discover a new way of relating to the difficult, a way that is different from how we normally react to difficult experiences. You know, trying to get away from it, to fight it, to distract ourselves, or maybe we are looking for someone to blame for our misery. I would like to read you a quote from an interview that Joseph Goldstein gave very recently. Vipassana practice, a lot of it is cultivating that ability to come close to suffering, to come close to what is unpleasant. Even when we are sitting or walking or doing some kind of formal Vipassana practice, in some way, we're cultivating that foundational understanding and willingness to come close to suffering. So if we're sitting with a pain in our knee or in the back, and then watching what our relationship to that pain is, right there we can see and practice. Okay, can I open to it and come close? Or am I pushing it away? Am I not liking it? Am I trying to just override it? So the Vipassana practice really is training us in our ability to come close to it and to motivate a compassionate response. Actually, what makes it so difficult usually to come close to suffering is not so much the dukkha itself, but our reactivity. We have already spoken about this. Our habitual tendency to take experience so personally. And then we think, I suffer, or this is my suffering. And if we see suffering as something that is so personal, if we don't see that the person next to us is also suffering quite a lot, then we might really think that this means now that we have in some way failed, we may feel a lot of shame around our suffering, and I just meet and encounter this so often, how so many of us immediately think there is something wrong about me. I'm suffering, therefore something is wrong about me. And that's just another layer of suffering that we are adding on top of our already difficult situation. But if we understand that pain, anguish, fear are all just a part of being a human being and not personal, we can maybe relax a little bit more with those difficult experiences learn to accept them. And the more we open to the unpleasant or difficult, the more we learn to embrace it with kindness, with gentleness, with compassion, the freer we become because we stop expecting more from the world than it can deliver. With a mind that is wise and clear, We go beyond avoidance. 
we go beyond denial and simply open to the truth. Yes, there is suffering in human existence. So let us come to the second noble truth of the arising of dukkha. The second ennobling truth states that dukkha doesn't just happen randomly, out of the blue, but that it arises due to certain causes and conditions. Just as a doctor might tell us that a disease was caused by an infection or some malfunction of an organ or uh, smoking too much or whatever, the Buddha taught that dukkha arises due to certain causes and conditions. This is what he said. Now, this, practitioners, is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for extermination. So craving is said to be the principal cause leading to suffering. It is really craving that keeps the whole wheel of conditioned existence rolling on. The Pali word here is tanha, which means thirst or fever of unsatisfied longing. And this is again Joseph Goldstein from his book, These translations of tanha give a sense of its intensely compelling nature, this primal energy that seems to come from deep within our being. That fever of unsatisfied longing is just the opposite of peace. Sounds familiar, maybe? Have you experienced craving? Maybe today, craving for a second cookie also. (laughs) So, craving is a tendency in the mind to want something that is not present. It is this tension in us as we look for something that could, could somehow fill this felt gap or hole in our being, this deficit somehow. But actually, it's the other way around. It's the tendency of desire, of craving, creates in us a feeling of lack, of not having enough. I need something. So we want what is pleasant, pleasant sensory impressions, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, social recognition, possessions, safety, etc., etc. Craving can manifest in many, many different forms. It can be extremely intense and it can be very, very, very subtle. Sometimes it can really be a true obsession, like an addiction where something becomes like the center of our life and everything revolves around our craved for object. Sometimes it's just a very small impulse to adjust something in our meditation 
posture or even inwardly to do something to have just a bit of better experience than the one we are having in this moment. So no matter how it manifests, we want to recognize craving when it arises. The other, you could like say, the other form in which craving can manifest and which also leads to suffering is aversion. It's like the other side of the coin. Aversion is the rejection and wanting to push away of what is unpleasant, of what is difficult. Anger is a form of aversion, but also rage or hatred or some mild irritation or even just a sense of resistance when we meet some unpleasantness. So we have an aversion to what we find unpleasant, what hurts, what smells bad, what um, maybe insults us in some way. Now, why does craving or aversion lead to suffering? Why is it seen as the cause for suffering? The first thing is both states are in themselves basically unpleasant, painful states because the mind is not at peace with what is right now in this moment. Both craving and aversion are a kind of being not content with this moment, not okay with what is. So there is a difference between what is in this moment and what I would wish to be there in this moment, what should be. And this creates a tension. And this is exactly where the suffering arises. Sometimes the world is not as I would like it to be. And as long as I hold on to my demands that things should be different, I will suffer. I will go back and forth between hopes that my wishes will become uh, fulfilled and fears that they will not come true. And this is very painful and unpleasant. The second problem with craving is that it makes us dependent on outer circumstances, dependent on getting our wants satisfied. So we get used to all kinds of sensory pleasures in our society. We have access to so many nice food, clothes, entertainment, lodging. We are quite well off in general, yes? I would say for most of us in here, this is probably true. And yet we can become totally dependent and we only notice when some of those things are not accessible anymore, how our whole uh, mind-body system reacts with frustration and uh, anger if these very used, uh, you know, all these nice things are just falling away. It's very difficult to live like that. So we are much more dependent than we know usually. And that's actually not a very nice state to constantly be dependent on the satisfaction of all our wants uh, and desires. 
of course, we need to distinguish between what we actually need, yes, and wants, desires. In addition, the problem with the craving mind is the tendency that it always wants more. So craving doesn't end by satisfying one wish. What was exciting and fulfilling at one point starts to feel normal after a while. It doesn't give us the same kick anymore like in the first moment. And then what happens? The mind begins to look around for a new object that it could desire. So the nature of craving is that it grows if we keep following it, if we keep feeding it, basically. As the Buddha said, the more they indulge in sensual pleasures, the more their craving for sensual pleasures increases and the more they are burned by the fever of sensual pleasures. In this sense, craving is like a fire that consumes whatever it can get and that gets bigger each time we feed it. So we have again the fire metaphor that Chris mentioned yesterday night. And this creates a dynamic of growing wishes and wants. Bigger cars, more fancy food, more stylish clothes, more spectacular entertainment. We want more and more of everything. We want growth and there is no end to this craving. That's the problem. And we see it with all the consequences that we have today on a global level. All the waste, all the depletion of resources, the pollution on this planet. It's really one of the consequences of craving. Just growing, growing, growing. A third big problem with craving is that it often makes people act in unskillful ways, which causes so much suffering. Blinded by desire, by an attraction, by greed, we only see the wanted object and totally forget about the consequences of our actions for other people involved. When a simple, mm, I like that, turns into I need that, and there is no mindfulness, no wisdom to stop us, then we are so compelled to move in the direction of the desired object without considering the possible side effects of our actions. And so craving, aversion, they lead to so much conflict, to so much destruction, exploitation, cheating, lying, and other unethical behavior. So it's understandable that the Buddha taught that craving should be abandoned. This noble truth of the origin of suffering is to be abandoned. By abandoning, he didn't mean that we should become aversive against craving and now fight against craving whenever we see it arise in our mind. Rather, the practice is that we learn to recognize 
craving when it arises in the mind and to learn to be mindful of it rather than just follow it, believe it. In order to learn more about it and develop more wisdom. And this is what we practice in meditation. We want to see clearly when wanting or not wanting, when aversion arises, and we want to examine them. In this way, we can see how those states arise, what triggers them, how we feed them through our thoughts, our reactions, and we can see their consequences. And being on retreat is actually a great opportunity to start to see all those mechanisms in the mind, to see craving at work. And out of this careful observation and exploration, so much insight arises, understanding. That is the purpose of what we are doing here. So it's important that we acknowledge unwholesome mind states when they arise, that we really bring kind interest and honesty to them. Of course, we'd rather pretend that desire or aversion are not there in our minds or hearts, or we try to suppress them. But what do we then learn about them? Not much. If we allow ourselves to clearly recognize such unwholesome mind states, we can learn a lot about them and we can develop our wisdom. And it is ultimately only our wisdom that is going to transform those forces. So... If we really practice this very deep looking, if we practice mindfulness, this investigation, presence, curiosity, then gradually, gradually, the wisdom can arise, the understanding that then leads to the third noble truth, to the end of suffering. So we come to the third ennobling truth, the truth of the end of suffering. After having given us the diagnosis of our situation, the Buddha now points out the possibility of healing. So we are not forced to remain in this endless cycle of craving leading to suffering and pain, but we do have a potential to put an end to this dynamic. The Buddha, now this practitioners, is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. It is the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same craving, the giving up and relinquishing of it, freedom from it, non-reliance on it. This is what the Buddha realized in the night of his awakening. He experienced what we call Nibbana in Pali or Nirvana in Sanskrit. We call it liberation or awakening. And 
we mean a state of mind where the mind is completely free from habitual tendencies that lead to suffering, from inner compulsions, from reactivity. Because suffering is being produced by the mind, it is not an absolute. That is the message here. It depends on causes and conditions. And if we stop creating the causes and conditions of suffering, the suffering will end. It's a very simple equation. And as Chris mentioned, the word nirvana in ancient Indian languages means to go out or to be put out, like a fire that is extinguished. And just as a flame goes out when it runs out of fuel, so also suffering, stress, is put to an end when the fuel of craving and clinging goes out. This is our potential of humans, that we are able to end this dukkha. Now, nirvana is not something that can really and definitely be put into words. The Buddha himself said that it was profound, difficult to see, and difficult to understand. Nirvana, also, also we would like to have it as something that we can get, is truly not something that we can gain. It is more like a falling away or dropping away of everything that veils or confuses our mind. Nibbana refers to a mind that is free from ignorance, from all illusions, an awakened mind that doesn't grasp after anything, that rejects nothing, and that is therefore in perfect peace with everything. Having nothing, clinging to no thing, that is the island. There is no other That's the unbinding, I tell you, the total ending of aging and death. Nirvana or Nibbana is a mind that is free from compulsive self-reference, from the compulsions of wanting to have or get rid of, free from the three root causes of ignorance, desire and aversion, a mind that is pure, free, boundless, and because of this, open and loving to all beings. Nirvana is a mind that abides in deep equanimity and peace, regardless of external circumstances. A mind that has brought wisdom and compassion to perfection. In the early texts, we find a variety of similes that illustrate what the Buddha spoke about, in addition to the one of the island. For instance, nirvana is compared to putting down a heavy burden, letting go of a heavy load. Nibbana as the cure for a serious illness. Nibbana as fearlessness. Nibbana as the other shore 
Nibbana as safety. Nibbana is also described as deep peace or highest happiness. It is interesting to see how does our mind react spontaneously to such descriptions. Do they speak to something in us? Can we somehow relate to them? Or is there maybe rather uh, inner reaction of skepticism, of defense, because maybe this sounds a little bit too far-fetched, too exaggerated? The teaching on Nibbana is really the most radical teaching of the Buddha, and I'm aware that not all people can relate to it, uh, and that's totally fine. But it can be helpful if we don't just understand Nibbana in the sense of one big moment some, in some distant future where I'm going to have this big moment, hallelujah, finally I got it. But if we understand it as something that we can already now get a taste at times, we can get a taste of Nibbana in all those moments where the mind is relatively free from reactivity, from all these normal compulsions. Already now we can experience such moments of mini-Nibbana when the mind is willing to just let go, even just temporarily, when the heart is open, when we are free from this normal self-centeredness, free from craving, free from aversion. And it is very, very helpful if we pay attention to such moments, if we notice them. And I'm sure all of you have had such moments. It's, it's more a matter of paying attention to them. We can learn to recognize them and to make a mental note. Ah, that's how a mind that is at peace feels. Because in a way we have almost unlearned to be just at peace. We are so used to always being active, hectic. To, we are used to having some kind of drama going on in our lives. And it does take time to gradually become familiar with the taste of freedom, with the taste of letting go. Mini Nibbana are those moments when all our expectations and demands that this moment should be different from how it is drop away. Moments in which the mind is not reactive, but able to simply rest in what is. It's all those moments, even brief moments, where the mind is at ease, relaxed, carefree. We might notice a thought, oh, there is nothing going on in my meditation. But maybe the mind is okay. Maybe it is just present. It's at ease. And all we need to do is just remain with this experience. Nothing more to do. If nothing is happening, we can just learn to get used to a mind that is not always busy and nervous. So 
these are all these moments where we finally allow to put down this heavy burden to release a habitual tension that we usually carry around with us. A bit like, you know, at the end of a long hike when we just take off the heavy backpack and put it down. Just this sense of, ah. Oh. And in this moment, there is no problem to solve. I don't need to be someone different from what I am. I'm just, ah. Oh. And things are fine. Things are fine in this moment. The burden of all our shoulds and coulds and musts and wants and hopes and fears and concerns, could we just drop them for a moment, just letting it all drop away and relax back into the openness and spaciousness of this moment? Nibbana is not to be found where we have finally optimized the external circumstances according to our desires, you know, having just the right room temperature, just the right flavor, just the right aesthetic environment or anything. Nibbana can only be found in our own mind. That's what it's about. Carol Wilson once said, in a moment when the heart is really pure and things are just as they are, there really is no problem, even when very painful stuff is happening. A friend of mine calls it the place of no problem. Actually, our practice here is a constant practice in Nibbana. We practice being fully present in our experience and learning more and more to relate to the experience from a place of deep inner peace, not making a problem, not creating more problems than the ones we already have. And this will gradually diminish our reactivity, our craving, our aversion. So Nibbana is not something that we need to believe in and have theoretical discussions about. It's about exploring our minds and just notice those moments when the suffering has come to a at least temporary end. Just appreciate those moments of peace. It's okay. So we come to the fourth noble truth, the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. After the Buddha states that suffering can come to an end, he shows us how to get there. Just as suffering has its cause, so does awakening, liberation have its cause. Awakening doesn't just happen by chance but only when the appropriate conditions come together. And we have it in our hands to cultivate those conditions. We cannot force awakening, but we can take care of doing what is supportive on this path. And the Buddha really pointed out what we need to take care of, 
how we can actually cultivate our mind, our heart in this direction of awakening. In The Noble Eightfold Path, he actually described a very comprehensive vision of a life that is dedicated to awakening. And when we just look at this path, it makes it very clear that this path isn't just about meditation, but it's really about our whole way of how we live in this world. And I will not go into the details, but this Eightfold Path comprises the following eight factors. Right view or understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration or collectedness. So we can say that the path that the Buddha outlined was very holistic because it really encompasses all aspects of our lives. And as we have already mentioned, ethics play a really fundamental role in this framework. So ethics are like the basis. Then we have the meditative training of mind and heart, the cultivation of certain mental qualities like mindfulness, loving-kindness, collectedness, and finally wisdom that leads to the liberation of the mind and the heart. And all the practice in the end culminates in the development of this deep penetrating wisdom that deeply understands the nature of all phenomena. And when the mind really understands, then this letting go happens naturally. And letting go is really the path to liberation. And this will not only serve us individually, but to the degree that we realize a bit more liberated heart and mind so many beings around us also benefit. If we are less neurotic, a bit more wise, a bit more patient, our fellow human beings will probably appreciate that a lot. And in this way, we can really make a very important contribution to this world. Okay, so we have outlined those four noble truths. The truth of suffering, the truth of the arising of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the truth of the path leading to suffering. And just to have such a framework can serve as an orientation in our life. Of course, the practice requires a lot of practice, a lot of dedication, a lot of patience. But if we know the direction into which we want to go, then we can align our life with this aspiration. We can align our choices, our actions with this vision. And we can trust that if we keep going in our practice, this will unfailingly lead 
to the gradual unbinding of the heart and mind to deep joy and deep peace. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. So we have a walking period and we will again have a rather short final sit but tonight we will do some chanting guided by Jaya. So please if you come back you can just help yourself outside. We will put out the sheets and you're welcome to just take one of those. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.